Welcome to Dr. Eric's Relentless Vitality Podcast. Our focus is on optimizing physical and mental vitality, maximizing performance, and extending lifespan. Dr. Eric is a licensed physician with a wealth of expertise in age management and preventive medicine, whose goal is enabling his patients to stay young, feel their best, and enjoy a higher quality of life. All right, excellent. Hey guys, it's Dr. Eric, the fitness physician, another cool episode of the Relentless Vitality Podcast. I'm excited. I've got an awesome guest today, a friend and colleague of mine, Dr. Yabit Hussein out of Colorado. So he's a, an amazing cardiologist and a fellow practitioner of cellular medicine like myself. And I wanted to get him on the call so we could talk all matters of the heart and basket, blood vessels and much, much more. So Dr. Abed, how are you today, my friend? I'm doing great. How are you, Eric? Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. So yeah, I'm up here in Ohio. Abed uh, is out in Colorado, but outskirts of Denver, correct? Yeah, we're in the uh, southern part of Denver. It's a, a little city called Greenwood Village. You know, just a stone's throw from Denver, basically a little suburb of that area. Uh, and I'm in the Boone Heart Institute over there, and I've been there for more than a year now. It's a preventative cardiology office that uh, uses conventional and functional cellular medicine for uh, preventative cardiology. Awesome. Awesome. Well, cool. Well, tell my, uh, my listeners, I want to give them a little, some, uh, some good stuff on, on what we talk about, especially from a cardiologist perspective. Um, I know you started in the kind of the traditional world of, uh, of cardiology kind of went into more of the preventive side. Is there any, any stories there anything, any, I want to, what, what clues you in to kind of go that route, I guess. I was, uh, yeah, I worked in uh, conventional cardiology for probably uh, 12, 15 years around that much, around that time, um, maybe less, maybe, but anyway, I was uh, in Las Vegas and I had a conventional inpatient outpatient practice. I was doing catheterizations, putting in stents or at least getting help with that. Uh, and it, it was, it was, uh, it was a practice that was, I was a solo practitioner and I got burnt out real quick. Uh, probably within a, less than 10 years into it, you know, doing every other weekend on call and, you know, and not having the right amount of sleep, I could feel myself burning out. And I remember seeing a lot of the older docs that were just kind of, you know, there were ghosts floating through the hospital. Even though they were taking care of people, they weren't really there, you know. They were doing an amazing job, but their health was was uh, waning. So, um, so you know, I uh, I took decided to take a sabbatical from practicing that way because I felt myself burning out, and I was just really unsatisfied with the the outcomes that we were getting, it just seemed like we were spending all of this money and attention on the, the extreme end of cardiac disease, you know, after the disease has occurred, after the event has occurred, you want to preventing a second event from happening or monitoring disease until a surgery has to happen. And then it just, it just seemed like there wasn't enough on the, all the other side of the spectrum for prevention. All we had was basically throw some statins at them and then tell them to exercise and, and watch their diet. But really, we didn't know what that meant because, you know, I mean, you remember back in the 80s, we were telling people to go for a low fat diet and we see where that ha- what happened with that. So, right. Right. you know, it's a lot of it was a lot of misguided information in the preventative uh, cardiology realm. So I took a sabbatical for many reasons and uh, and then decided, all right, if I'm going to go back into medicine and decide to re-engage practicing medicine, I want to do it in a way that is uh, congruent with what I believed in and what I believed was 
uh, a functional medicine approach and, and preventing disease as opposed to letting it happen and then trying to prevent a secondary event. Awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. I can totally, totally, uh, uh, feel you on that one because you know I was the same way I was in the ER doc and I, I saw all this stuff on the bad side people at their worst and I thought man this could be prevented you know what can I do to stop this, this yeah. trip, you know so yeah I can I can totally empathize with that so well awesome let's dig in on some uh, some good stuff I think a lot of uh, you know my patients probably yours too I think the biggest mm -hmm. thing with heart health and uh, heart with the, the blood vessels etc is, is like we talked we just mentioned is prevention yeah um, you know so I think the key is preventing things what um I guess, what's your perspective on, I guess, prevention and screening? I love, and this is, I guess, a part two of the question we like screening, right? Like when do patients, when is it best to do any provocative tests when, you know, we can talk about calcium scoring and stress tests mm -hmm. or casts and all that good stuff. But I guess more from a prevention side, how has your approach changed through the years in terms of what you're advising patients in terms of, you know, uh, eating practices, fitness, you know, things like that? Well, everybody gets, for the most part, everybody gets the recommendation of intermittent fasting. Um, unless there's an individual uh, individual restriction or a dietary restriction that doesn't allow them to tolerate it, um, or they just they, they just can't get their 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 cycle their eating cycle around it, you know that there's a, so much data that tells us no matter what type of fasting they do, fasting is helpful for us. And we know uh, that we, we, I mean we live in a calorie dense and an overfed society. So, and it's becoming an overfed world. And that's becoming one of the biggest ailments that, that we have. One of the most biggest sources of, uh, of, of infirmity and disease, just the constant, um, constant overload of nutrition. So in the, you know, our systems are designed to, to be uh, actually the opposite, underfed, to do, deal with feast and famine. But now we're in, a, in an evolutionary place where we have the, you know, we're, our systems are not able to tolerate this excess amount of calories. So some sort of caloric reduction is important. And that can be anything from, you know, intermittent fasting with the schedule on and off during a regular week, um, or doing it um, periodically, doing a monthly two-day fast, you know, or every three, three months, do a five-day fast. That's, you know, I, I don't recommend going past three to five days. Um, and even if you're going to do a five day fast then limit your activity while you're doing that, the nice thing about inter intermittent fasting is that it, you don't have to limit your activity. You can continue to exercise and then gain the benefits of, of doing the fasting, but it's just one of many uh, fat fasting uh, recommendations or, or protocols. So either one of those, that, that's one. Then the second thing is of course, exercising and uh, you know, an activity. So, it doesn't have to be extreme activity and depending on what level of athletics you you're in, what your injuries are, something as simple as just walking after your meals. If you're not, if you, if you don't have a daily regular practice of exercise, then taking a short walk or doing a little bit of activity after your last meal of the day, after dinner is great to maintain blood sugar and, and keep those, those spikes of blood sugar happening. Uh, and then, and then overall, you know, it's, uh, it's great for muscle health. It's great for longevity, stimulating all of those longevity pathways. Um, I, I also make sure to recommend that my patients do resistance exercises as well as aerobic activity, um, because aerobic activity is important for cardiovascular health, but 
the, the importance of resistance exercises in boosting nitric oxide, improving muscle health is underestimated. So that's also part of the recommendation. Um, those, are some, those are some of the, the basic overarching um, you know, uh, recommendations I give to all my patients, but uh, you know, everything is a little bit individualized. If, if it's an athlete already, if they're an athlete already, then I recommend doing, you know, high, inter high, uh, in high intensity interval training about twice a week. That's going to help in from multiple different ways, stimulate more of those longevity based pathways, stimulate more growth hormone production. Um, and then, you know, the resistance exercise helps natural testosterone production, boosting that if they do have that as an issue. Um, and then the fasting will also help doing that to help to do that. Working out in a fasted state can also help increase growth hormone uh, uh, rebound when you do feed. So, so there's a lot of different, um, you know, a lot of different things that sound like they, uh, they make sense, but they also make sense when we look at the data. Yeah, for sure. That's a, yeah, I do. I use a lot of intermittent fasting myself. I don't do it as much as I should personally, I like to eat, but I do, you know, I try to do it as much as I can, you know, kind of like an intermittent fast. I've never done a, a very long one. Um, yeah. I think I got to maybe, I think I almost got to a 24 hour once, but that's about, <laughs> about as far, but one of these days I'll do that. So, um, uh, what, speaking of, uh, exercise, what's, I'm curious, what your perspective is on like, say patients who have, um, borderline blood pressure issues or are hypertensive, like, Hey, you know, cause I get this question now that, Hey doc, you know, how should I exercise or what, what can I do to lower my blood pressure without taking pills? Uh, mm -hmm. above, you know, what you just talked about, which of course is important. Any particular exercise regimen or anything else you recommend in that regard? You know, exercise, it's tough, uh, you know, to, to use exercise just for blood pressure reduction. You know, the, it's still going to be a combination of uh, aerobic and uh, resistance exercises. So, but, uh, you know, there may be it, the, the, the benefits of long extended cardio are, are not as, as, as profound as we think. We can get a lot more benefit out of, sh you know, short, high intensity interval training. So it may be important to, if their blood pressure is okay, then adding in a little bit of that uh, intermittent, the high the eight hit training, high intensity interval training, so that they can augment a little bit of their, their natural hormonal uh, makeup. To, to control blood pressure, but definitely resistance exercise. And it doesn't have to be a lot of heavy weight, but some load bearing does, does uh, benefit nitric oxide production. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Okay. Um, not to get too, I guess another question that I, I was going to ask you first, I've been looking into this myself lately and then the literature has kind of gone back and forth on this a little bit. So in terms of, um, Calcium supplementation, you know, there's mm -hmm. been, you know, a lot of times, obviously, people recommend that for prevention of osteoporosis, men and women, um, mm -hmm. as we get older, but then, of course, there's a lot of, uh, many studies have indicated that, you know, calcium supplementation can be dangerous in terms of causing uh, calcium buildup in the arteries or yeah. deposition of calcium in, in tissues where it's not supposed to go. Um, so obviously, food is best, right, if you can get your calcium from food, but in terms of actual calcium supplements and getting tissue where you want it's in preventing obviously we want calcium where it's where it's needed but not in the bones or not in the tissues not in the heart vessels and things of that nature what's what's any have you dug into that at all or any recommendations in that regard yeah the the what we tell our patients especially patients with osteoporosis is to continue their calcium supplementation but it's a, it's a vital that they have normal vitamin d and vitamin k2 as part of their regimen uh, the, you know, 
taking calcium orally is, is, uh, has got limited benefit unless we try and optimize our internal calcium regulatory mechanisms. And that happens with vitamin D and K2. So, and vitamin D alone is half the picture. You know, it's vitamin D gives us uh, cellular calcium regula regulation um, control, and then K2 does it more on a macroscopic uh, scale. So we may be, and, and so we, there's studies that look at K2 in, uh, in the context of aortic valve sclerosis, you know, um, it, um, coronary artery calcification, things like that. So using K2 in conjunction with vitamin D is important. And you know, if you look at some of the studies that talk about statins, where they cause, or they may be implicated in causing calcification, that's that's a mixed picture. There's a lot more going on there than than they'd like to you know simplify it into being. What's happening is we're reducing our inflammatory burden, and that by itself is going to allow our body to stabilize plaque that causes calcium. But statins can reduce our vitamin D and K2. So in that mechanism, even though this, the plaque is getting stabilized, it's making it stabilized with a little bit more of a calcium makeup. So if you supplement that while you're taking your statin, then uh, less chance of that calcification happening and maybe just reverse cholesterol transport happening more normally. Awesome. Yeah, no, that's great. I, I, I'm a, I never give D without K, you know, for that reason too. I'm, I found out, mm -hmm. learned a lot more last couple of years about the power and benefits of vitamin K2 and what yeah. it can do for many things, you know, not just the calcifications, but heart disease and things that and also been uh, adding and recommending a lot more vitamin A and the retinoid, mm -hmm. retinoid pathway is very integral. Uh, what I've learned uh, being synergistic with D and K as well. So again, mm -hmm. get it through food. So, but I've been learning a little bit about that as well. I thought that was pretty interesting too. So, okay. What about, and you and I, uh, Abed and I talked on the phone about a week ago, but I'll, I'll ask me again, just for my listeners, but um, in terms of like um, testing, like preventive or even like risk, what we call risk stratification, how big of a risk are you? We, I'd love, uh, you know, talk a little bit about like calcium scoring versus say like yeah. tests and things of other, other tests, whether it's a patient who has no problem, just want to, just wants to get a lay of the land before they get much mm -hmm. older um, or someone who actually has disease and screen, I guess it's two different categories, but say you're healthy, but kind of want to get a lay of the land. What's a lot of people recommend calcium scoring to get a baseline and, and assessing it, but how, how good is that? I mean, obviously I think doing, uh, coronary angiograms is, is good. Although aren't they doing now where like actually intracoronary ultrasounds to kind of really get a good look in there, that kind of thing. So, but not everybody can do that. So anyway, I'll let you, I'll let you talk. I'm talking too much here. Sure. <laughs> um, so you know, let's, let's, let's kind of walk through, uh, you know, how, if I, if, if somebody wants to get uh, evaluated, what I would recommend that they do. Um, I think the, the first thing is stand, you know, you want to do a standard, um, uh, standard blood work, look at the, the cholesterol, see if that's elevated. Now, cholesterol is not the culprit, but it's an indicator of what's going on. So if we see that that's elevated and there's a family history, and maybe even in general, you know, for, uh, for middle-aged population, I add on inflammatory markers. And those are going to be just serum markers that look at high-sensitivity CRP, um, oxidized LDL, plaque or PLAC, or else another test. It could be called uh, LPPLA2. Uh, and uh, potentially, yeah, there's uh, some other that look, look at um, nitric oxide balance. But that gives us a idea of generalized inflammation. It also tells us how that LDL is being, uh, being managed. 
you know, LPPLA2 looks at risk factors in, uh, it, you know, in lifestyle. And if those are elevated, then that's an enzyme that gets higher in our system and causes LDL to get converted to oxidized LDL. Oxidized LDL is the bad guy. Uh, that's the stuff that turns into what we call basically hot plaque. It's, it's the, the inflamed stuff that's what, what causes heart attacks. So when we can see a high LPPLA2 or a high oxidized LDL in somebody that's young or unexpected, then that, you know, that would warrant further workup, meaning imaging. Uh, and you could just do imaging if you wanted to be preemptive as well. So what image am I talking about? Calcium scores are half the picture. It only gives us a limited understanding of what's, the, what's going on. Calcium happens when our plaque it, when, the, when the pools of cholesterol in the arteries are changing into crystals, when they're getting oxidized and they're becoming inflamed, our body will stabilize them. And by doing that, it creates calcification. So it only tells us if there's old plaque that your body is already stabilized. So if we see a lot of calcium in a young person, then we know that they have plaque that's been around for a while and that's somebody that needs to be treated aggressively. But if we don't see calcium, it doesn't tell us anything about the cholesterol pools that, don't have, that are free of calcium. And those are the ones that are dangerous. Those are the ones that have oxidized LDL in them. And those are the ones that cause heart attacks. So it's very important in a young person that we get an assessment of the actual total plaque burden, not just the calcium. So what I recommend is if, if they are open to it, getting what's called a CT coronary angiogram, CAT scan of the coronary arteries with angiographic dye with contrast material. And that gives us a much better evaluation. So, so now with the advancement of lower radiation CAT scans, higher resolution studies, we can see what's going on in the arteries much better. And even so just the presence of lip of cholesterol pools you know, we can see that on a very gross, very gross scale, like small, like mild, moderate, or severe. Just getting that assessment tells us, okay, there's cholesterol pools here and there's calcium. This is somebody that is high risk. We need to really treat them aggressively. If we don't see any cholesterol pools and there's a little bit of calcium, then maybe they've had some stuff in the past. It's been managed. We don't need to be too aggressive, but we still need to be treating them. And then otherwise, and then you may see somebody that doesn't have any calcium and very little, you know, very little cholesterol pool. That's also somebody that we have some time to treat. You know, the, what happens is we, we deposit cholesterol and then remove it as well. So that's a natural flux. What we want to do is maintain or, you know, make sure that our body can maintain that flux. It's when that flux gets overloaded by too much LDL that it becomes a problem. Gotcha. Gotcha. No, that's awesome. That was a good explanation and a good, good breakdown of the risk factors too. So I always look at those inflammatory markers too, the PLAC and the mm -hmm. high sensitive CRP. A lot of people don't get that. And I think that's important, a good screening test. And uh, I too stress the importance of not just the LDL, they so they're, they're okay, but you got to yeah. get the advanced markers, the part of, you know, what you mentioned, mm -hmm. sizes, APOB, all those different things. Um, there's yeah. a, lot, a lot of good talks about there about, like, as you said, like you said, cholesterol, like, as you mentioned, is not the bad guy. It's kind of a marker. And a lot of studies are indicating it's actually our body's response to reduce inflammation and to heal. Yeah. Um, and obviously, you know, we want to find that sweet spot. It's not, not just about lowering the cholesterol. I think a lot of in the traditional world is kind of like, you know, just 
lower that cholesterol as low as possible and, and nothing else. But I think you have to come at it from a full approach, like what you mentioned and what I do. Um, and, you know, you can be, I don't know, I think you can have it too low. Some studies, I think you and I both uh, trained with Dr. Rousier and he's talked about mm -hmm. the dangers of people uh, higher as, as patients get older, having too low of an LDL actually have increased uh, issues, like increased mortality and neurologic issues and things of that nature. So we could talk about statins, I guess, now or, or later, but that's that's something that come up, you know, his perspective on statins. But um, yeah, there's a time and a place for, I think a lot of people get them that probably shouldn't, but they do have their place for sure, just like any mm -hmm. medication, right? Definitely. It's, it's um, you know, if you have, a, if you've had an event, you know, then the, the, the addition of statins is, you know, unless you have a, uh, a sensitivity to the medication, if, you, if you're able to take it, then it's malpractice if you're not taking it. I mean, that's, it, it, it reduces events, but, you know, it's, it, it's part of the, the, the conventional treatment, so to speak. So it, we know it uh, reduces inflammation and uh, the event reduction may be modest, but it is important to, to at least try that out, get on, get those on board. You know, the, I still have, um, you know, I still have to look at those studies that look at lower mortality in the elderly population because with low, with low cholesterol levels, because, you know, they're using old agents, they're using statins. And we know that there's a J curve response to statins, meaning there's a sweet spot at the bottom of the curve. And then we have an increase in events when we get to the far end. Well, what we also know is that, um, if we do multiple agents, you know, because there's now other agents that work very differently than statins that will reduce our cholesterol uh, and they'll reduce it substantially. And these are the PCSK9 inhibitors. And the newest one is basically a cholesterol vaccine. You know, it uses mRNA technology. Um, we don't see that J curve uh, elevation. We see it flatten out and stay flat. So it's, uh, it may be something just related to the mechanism of statins and not necessarily the, the degree to which those cholesterols are lowered, because the only agents we've had in the past to do that substantially enough were statins. And we know that those are a problematic medication. You know, and we also see that there's, stu there's studies out there that show that LDLs below 25 show rapidly, rapid plaque regression. Um, that, you know, regression that can take one to two years that may normally take decades. So, um, so it's, it's, so it's the wild west right now when you talk about treatments for, uh, for, for plaque and corn and uh, plaque regression, because there's just a lot of tools that are coming online. You know, we haven't even talked about GLP-1 receptor agonists, you know, those may not lower your cholesterol, but they, lower the inflammatory burden of your vascular system and may affect plaque in a different, completely different way. We know that it reduces uh, events uh, based on the studies that brought it to brought those agents to market for diabetes. And that's independent of blood sugar control. So, yeah. yeah, so there's, there's a lot of agents there and, you know, the, the question of what, how low is too low is still up in the air. Interesting. Yeah, you're right. It, there's a, it's a, it's a good, that's a good way to put it. The wild, wild west for sure. I agree. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And you and I both obviously use, use hormone therapy and peptide therapy. We were both trained with, uh, you know, the same peptide organizations, et cetera. And mm -hmm. uh, that was one of the things I was going to talk about was the GLP-1 agonist. I think those are amazing drugs. You actually, I think at one of the SSRP conference, I think you gave a nice talk on that. Maybe you could 
briefly bullet pointed out here, but I love them. I think they have a lot of uh -huh. great, uh, quote unquote, anti-aging effects, obviously helpful for weight loss, insulin resistance improvements, uh, neurologic improvement and more. But yeah, anything from your perspective, from a cardiology coach, I mean, you've touched on a little bit already. Anything else yeah. about those? Well, when you look at, uh, there's a lot of different studies that show multiple pleiotrophic benefits, a wide ranging benefits from, uh, from uh, GLP-1 receptor agonists. Certainly, we know that it, uh, they affect blood sugar control, and that is uh, definitely going to help uh, reduce cardiovascular events. But we also know that independent of blood sugar control, it affects the vascular system. It increases nitric oxide production, reduces inflammatory burden on the endothelium, and it also improves um, the... The, uh, re reduces oxidized LDL uh, formation. It reduces foam self production or, or, or transformation. So it, it's a, it's a, it reduces that, um, that inflammation that's happening underneath the endothelium and in the formation of plaque. We also see that the, the, some of those anti-inflammatory benefits translate to a modest blood potential blood pressure benefit. So maybe up to a few millimeters of mercury, up to five. There's a couple of studies that show that, but that's probably due to the, uh, the nitric oxide benefit. So, because um, it does help improve nitric oxide in, in a couple of different mechanisms. So there, there's, uh, there's uh, so that's looking at plaque. When we look at heart failure and we look at um, some of the effects on the myocardium, it may help the myocardium utilize glucose more efficiently. And it also, uh, there's some studies that show that in heart failure, it can actually improve functional status a little bit. Uh, when you look at, look at it in the acute setting and acute myocardial infarction, the use of uh, GLP-1 receptor agonists in the acute setting can help improve outcomes and reduce the amount of, uh, of heart muscle that's being damaged you know, after the heart attack or during the heart attack. Um, so, I mean, so that's the, the, the detailed data. If we take a step back and look at what the medication does on a global, on a, well, not a global, on a cellular level, that can kind of give you an idea of exactly why it's working so well. You know, it really, it helps, you know, we talk about mitochondria. It's the real, it's the sexy, the sexy organelle. Everyone wants to help your mitochondria out, right. you know, it's, but the other organelle that's, that's just as important is your endoplasmic reticulum. And that is the protein manufacturing centers of our cell. GLP-1 receptor agonists like semaglutide, like liraglutide, um, you know, they will, they will help your endoplasmic reticulum make proteins more efficiently. And it will help with, interestingly enough, it'll help with autophagy. It's one of the few things that can promote autophagy in a fed state. Most other, only, most other ways to do it require fasting or being in a non-fed state to starve yourself so that your cells then have to look for other places where there's stray proteins that can be broken down and used for energy. Well, this allows your cell to stay fed, but uh, improves its, the endoplasmic reticulum's checks, check system so that it doesn't release misformed proteins. It releases them more efficiently and better formed. So this way you don't have those proteins that float around that reduce our cellular, our cellular efficiency. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. The GLP ones are, they, they do so many things. And I think we're learning more and more about them every day. I think yeah. 
That's awesome. Um, obviously, you and I both use a lot of peptides. Um, any others mm -hmm. that you're using more of than anything else with your patients, whether it's cardiac related or non-cardiac related? I use a lot of the GHRHs and GHRPs, and I use a lot of BPC for sure. Those are the, you know, the foundational peptides. Yep. You know, mostly the, the GHRHs and GHRPs are used for multiple reasons. There's, you know, Testamorellin has some studies that look at reduction of IMT into a medial thickness. Mm -hmm. So that's, and that's, so that's documented and that, and it means, all right, using Testamorellin will not only improve lean body mass, improve their, their muscle ability to recruit, to, to muscle building ability and, and athleticism, but it'll help, uh, you know, help their vascular health. So that's one, uh, one of them that I like to add on to ipramorelin. Sometimes I'll use CJC. You know, there's no, diff no study that looks at IMT with uh, CJC, but it's a similar compound. It, it's not, doesn't, it doesn't, um, CJC and the difference between CJC and testamorelin is that testamorelin is a compound that's larger and takes up a larger amount of the similar profile as growth hormone. Mm -hmm. CJC is a much narrower profile set of proteins that covers that growth hormone uh, molecule. So it won't have as many wide ranging effects. So I try to use tessamorelin when possible, but I use low doses of tessamorelin, um, significantly lower than what's usually recommended because it's not tolerated by everybody and you don't need that heavy boost that tessamorelin can give. Um, so that's one. And then BPC for multiple reasons, the, certainly the, the, the GI benefits, you know, if we make sure that their gut health is okay, then that translates to better overall inflammation and reduced vascular inflammation. That's one thing. Uh, but there's some studies that, that look at BPC for AFib prevention or treatment. So I have some patients that have AFib, they use BPC to reduce the paroxysms of AFib. Uh, and then I have, and then I'm using it uh, as a general anti-inflammatory on some level. I use it for a lot of musculoskeletal issues, but those are probably the most common ones. Um, and then, you know, trickling down from there, thymusin beta four, or if you can get that, or thymolin, uh, some sort of, you know, uh, thymus product is helpful. There is, uh, especially post MI. There's a, there, there's a gr large amount of studies that look at thymosin beta-4 uh, in, in, my, in myocardial health, in actual uh, cardiac muscle health. And it, what, what thymosin beta-4 does, especially in conjunction with BPC, is it helps your cells deposit actin fibers in a nice organized manner. So by doing that, it prevents that disorganized scar tissue formation. And it allows and, and it, it uh, promotes um, myocardial stem cell or satellite cell recruitment. So by doing that, you know, immediately after you have an event, they, they've seen that it reduces the severity or the amount of my, muscle tissue that dies after a heart attack, and then also improves the heart's ability to keep its structure after a heart attack. Because that's one of the problems after a heart attack is the structure gets gets messed up. The heart become, goes from a cone to being a globe. And when it goes to, when it starts doing that, that's when it becomes very inefficient and goes to heart failure. Awesome. Yeah, that's cool. That's very cool. I kind of forgot about some of the cardiac benefits of thymus and beta. I, I'm with you. I use a lot of the CJC of a combo, sometimes test Merlin if patients can afford it and the BPC or my one-two punch uh, yeah. use all the time. And yeah, like you said, thymus and alpha is great, thymus and beta. <laughs> Uh, some of the other ones too. So, but yeah, I agree with you. Those are kind of the top top tier with me as well. 
Um, and you're probably like me as well as you know, you, oh, what were you gonna say? I was gonna say, I do like to add on if, if they can afford it, uh, you know, SS31, you know, now we're starting to get into some of the more, you know, rare fringe type of peptides. But SS31 is a, uh, is a, is a mitochondrial peptide, increases cardiolipin, which is the inner membrane of the mitochondria. And specific to heart muscles, heart muscle cells, it can be very helpful too. Reduces inflammation and you can use it prevent, preventatively or even after an event. So there's a lot of ways that it helps. It's just an expensive peptide. So, you know, that's not something I use as a constant medication, but sometimes I'll cycle it on and off. And it all, you know, that's after having them on, you know, testosterone or hormone replacement therapy and making sure all their guts in order, the supplements. So, you know, this list starts to get a little long after a while. But for sure. Yeah. The SS31, that'd be something maybe to do maybe a month or two out of maybe or more out of the year and then kind of cycle it on and off. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's one I'm, I haven't used really much because of, as you mentioned, it's a little, it's hard to get and it is a little expensive, but it can be very helpful for sure. And as you mentioned, I use a lot of hormone therapy. I'm sure you're also mm -hmm. you know, uh, testosterone, the benefits of testosterone, estradiol, for, you know, thyroid, you know, very help, very, you know, tons of studies showing the benefits of cardiac health and prevention and treatment. Uh, I'm sure you're doing a lot of that as well. Definitely. Yeah. Awesome. Use, uh, yeah, especially the more I dig and even going back, even reading some of the old textbooks, like as even on like thyroid, for example, you read a lot of stuff from like Broda Barnes and some of these old studies and mm -hmm. thousands and thousands of patients improving their, their heart health, you know, improving cardiac function, reducing cholesterol, all these things just with thyroid. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's, it's a, it's a cheap medication. I think it gets underutilized and there's a, there's a lot of that cloud of, of old school uh, recommendations about TSH. And I think that that impedes a lot of the, the, the utilization of thyroid medication effectively. Yeah. Yeah. Are you using many nutraceuticals? There's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of docs who, who use, you know, swear by some of the nutraceuticals for heart health in terms of things like aged garlic extract and berberine and uobane and, um, you know, the Linus Pauling protocol with the lysine and vitamin C to help reduce plaque, things of that nature. Have you used much of that or looked into that much? Any of those? We, we use uh, berberine, uh, aged garlic extract, and uh, red yeast rice in, in uh, patients that don't want to use statins. Um, the problem is that it, to get the same effect, or at least to, you know, to get some sort of measurable effect, it takes a lot of pills to do, to do that. You know, you're talking about aged garlic extract, about 1,200 milligrams a day, and then red yeast rice can be up to 3,400 milligrams a day, you know, in divided doses. So that right there can be eight pills. Yeah. Um, and then the one thing that I am trying to find use more recently, and I've been finding some benefit, is with citronol, um, and that is a orange peel extract. Also very hard to find, but um, that can sometimes help with. Uh, with cholesterol management. Uh, there's also um, a, you know, using niacin at lower doses with leucine. And that's something that was, uh, was put together by uh, um, Leonard. Yeah. Yeah. Leonard, New BioAge. So they, you know, they put together, a, I think it's called Lucinergy, which is a great, it's a, it's a resveratrol leucine combo. And then with a little bit of niacin, it's very little amount, it doesn't cause the flushing. Right you know, it, it has a, the benefits of a higher dose of niacin. So I think that's, we're starting to roll that out and use that more. That's useful. 
so there's a, you know, the, the, as far as the mechanisms go, we don't know what aged garlic extract is really doing. We, you know, there, there's some speculation, but we don't know definitively. Berberine is, is a compilation of multiple herbs, I think, it, you know, and what it does is it can have a PCSK9 effect. It can also have the effect of some other metabolic pathways that we're still figuring out. Uh, we know what red yeast rice does. It's an HMG coenzyme A reductase inhibitor, just like statins are. So if you have a statin intolerance, you may want to be careful with the, the, the dose of the, the red yeast rice. Um, citronol is really well tolerated. It's just a matter of finding it. And I think um, Leonard at New BioAge does have, he do, he's also rolling out citronol. So, and that's a, you know, that's the other thing. It's, it's got to be at a, from a quality source because sometimes it may just be the wrong compound right. and it may not be effective. Yeah, I like the citronol. I've been using the loose energy with a lot of my patients, more for like insulin sensitivity and weight loss, et cetera, but the cardiac benefits and cholesterol, you know, et cetera, are all there as well. I think it's a cool product. Um, as you said, it's just make sure it's sourced well. Um, mm -hmm. And niacin is an interesting topic too. I was going to ask you your take on that because obviously there's a lot of studies out there showing the benefits from a cardiac perspective, although some say that, you know, it's helpful, but some of the, the end results didn't change much. Uh, you just raised our level, but others say it does help. You know, Dr. I know mm -hmm. Dr. Jay touts the benefits of it all the time in his presentations, but um, yeah, are you, I mean, outside of are just regular dose niacin, are you using it much for, for uh, overall cardiac health above and beyond just raising HDL? I try to use it as much as I can. Yeah. Um, especially the, now that we have an option for doing it at lower dose, mm -hmm. that's, uh, it's, it's helpful and more tolerated. So, it, you know, low, low, increasing your HDL will help with reverse cholesterol transport. So it's, uh, and that's one of the, the goals to try and help our bodies remove cholesterol more effectively than, than it has been, uh, prior, and then that will help to reduce the chances of those cholesterol pools from becoming oxidized, crystallized, and inflamed. Great. Awesome. Excellent. Excellent. Well, that was great. I don't want to take up too much of your time. If you want to give a mm -hmm. shout out to uh, your clinic, your website, et cetera, throw it out there for everybody to hear. And um... yeah, with the uh, Boone Heart Institute, that's at uh, Boone, B-O-O-N-E, heart.com. And we're in Greenwood Village. You know, we, we take all comers, our patients, we, you know, we, uh, whether you had an event or whether you're just looking for prevention, um, and we do telemedicine too. So we can see you from anywhere. Awesome. That's cool. Excellent. Well, thank you. I bet I appreciate your time. I mean, yeah, thanks. Good seeing you. And yep. thanks again for having me out here. Yeah, you too. Absolutely. One second here.